It's Friday, July 7th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Say you want to reduce your carbon footprint. Well, if you're an ordinary consumer, you can ride a bike or drive a hybrid, maybe eat a little bit less meat. If you're a state, though, say the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, just for example, and you're really serious about cutting carbon emissions, as in upwards of 90 percent by 2050. Well, in that case, it's all about electricity. Here in Pennsylvania, the electricity sector is the most significant contributor of greenhouse gas emissions. So it makes sense that it's the place that we start. We're a huge exporter of electricity. So what we do here in Pennsylvania affects many of our neighboring states. Earlier this year, Peck hosted a conference on deep decarbonization. For two days, academics, policy experts, government officials, and business leaders met to hash out solutions for the Commonwealth. And this summer, we're proud to unveil the fruit of those labors in the form of a 29-page report. We'll dig into Peck's new white paper and look at the road ahead for Pennsylvania and its energy sector with conference organizer Lindsay Baxter coming up. First, a look at some of the last week's environment and energy news headlines. As the state budget process wears on, the still unfinished 2017-2018 budget is already facing a court challenge. In the Commonwealth Court filing this week, the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation argues the current budget is unconstitutional. That's because it diverts money from the state's oil and gas lease fund to cover operating expenses for the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. The group recently won a landmark state Supreme Court decision, affirming that such spending violates the 46-year-old Environmental Rights Amendment. Attorney John Child tells State Impact Pennsylvania the ruling makes clear that the Constitution requires those funds to be spent directly and exclusively on conservation programs. As of this recording, lawmakers have yet to agree on a revenue scheme to fund the $32 billion spending plan already approved last week. And by the way, for analysis of that Supreme Court decision and what it will mean for Pennsylvania going forward, check out our episode from last week, June 30th. That's Pennsylvania Legacies, number 45. Business appears to be picking up for Pennsylvania's natural gas industry after a more than two-year slump. The number of new gas wells being drilled in the state's Marcellus shale fields had dropped to pre-shale gas boom levels last year. But a new analysis out this week from the Associated Press finds 2017's looking very different. In the first half of this year alone, producers have more than doubled the number of new wells they drilled in all of 2016. It comes as natural gas prices continue to rebound from historic lows. S&P Global Market Intelligence tells AP prices are now almost twice what they were last year. 2016 data released in May by the Department of Environmental Protection showed that despite the slowdown in drilling, the industry again posted record production numbers in excess of 5 trillion cubic feet. AP's report finds the development heavily concentrated in the state's northeastern and southwestern corners, with Washington, Green, and Susquehanna counties accounting for more than 60 percent of the year's new well construction. An annual report released jointly by the U.S. and Canadian governments last month assesses the health of the Great Lakes. The prognosis? Not so great. And least great among the five freshwater bodies is Lake Erie. The State of the Great Lakes 2017 Highlights Report says the ecosystem's in poor condition and is deteriorating quickly, due in large part to algal blooms fed by persistent nutrient pollution. The report also notes ongoing problems with Lake Erie's beaches, making them inhospitable to wildlife and often inaccessible to recreational visitors. Overall, though, the study says the condition of the Great Lakes is stable. 
And state officials warn an invasive insect species recently arrived in Pennsylvania could have a serious impact on fruit growers and particularly on the state's growing wine industry. The lanternfly, native to Southeast Asia, has been in Pennsylvania for at least three years but has yet to appear anywhere else in the U.S. The State Department of Agriculture is working to contain the bug before it spreads. Failing to do so, the department says, could mean major losses for Pennsylvania's $20 million a year grape industry, among others. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reports the lanternfly's droppings can lead to mold on grapevines and can also affect fermentation. Pennsylvania is the nation's fifth largest producer of grapes and is home to more than 200 wineries, according to the Pennsylvania Winery Association. PEC has released a new white paper this summer based on our March conference, Achieving Deep Carbon Reductions, Paths for Pennsylvania's Electricity Future. The paper lays out 15 priorities for decarbonizing the Commonwealth's electricity sector, and it's now available for download via the conference website, which is at PEC-climate.org. Lindsay Baxter, PEC's program manager for energy and climate, organized the conference. She sat down recently with PEC president David Woodwell for an overview. So, Lindsay, we just put out a report We did. What is it? Exciting stuff. Well, this is uh, one of the key deliverables of the conference that PAC presented in March on the topic of deep decarbonization of Pennsylvania's electricity sector. So the report essentially does two things. It's a synopsis of what was presented at that event. We had some amazing speakers from across the country that shared information on nuclear, renewables, carbon capture and storage, energy efficiency, and some other topics that came up, you know, both the pros and the cons and and how how they could feed into an energy future in Pennsylvania. So the report, first of all, provides a synopsis of that information. And then it goes a little further and looks at what some of the key issues that emerged from participants and from the conversation were. And it lays out, oh, about 15 recommendations. Don't ask me to remember all 15 of them off the top of my head of of basically what deserves more consideration. There's probably hundreds of things we could do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Not all of them are going to get us to where we need to go, which is you know, at least an 80% reduction in greenhouse gases by mid-century. So, so we have a lot of work <laughs> in front of us moving forward. And, you know, this is really Peck's document. It's, it, it reflects the feedback of the conversation, but it's our take on it and kind of outlining where we want to go with in terms of next steps. So taking people back a little bit, what is deep decarbonization sure. as the primer? Yeah, it's a, it's a big word. It's becoming kind of a buzzword, I think. Deep decarbonization refers to reductions in greenhouse gas emissions by at least 80%, getting closer to you know 100% or beyond by mid-century. And it's really in line with what would have to be done to limit global warming to about 2 degrees C. It's, it's really in line with what national and international scientists are saying we need to do to prevent the absolute worst potential outcomes of climate change. In talking about this conference, it was a decision we made to focus just on electricity. Why did we do that? There's a few reasons. For one, when we talk about deep decarbonization, one of the priorities is often phrased as electrify everything you can. Electricity 
is going to become more and more important as we see a shifting towards electric vehicle infrastructure, more electrification of processes in in the industrial sector, perhaps even more um, electrical heating being put in place. Electricity has the benefit of, first of all, we know how to produce electricity from renewable sources more easily than we know how to produce fuels at this point. But also, even when you're using a traditional you know, fossil fuel plant, it's a point source. It can be measured, it can be managed, whereas vehicles driving around are non-point sources. It's very hard to, to measure and manage the emissions coming from those. The other more you know nuts and bolts piece of it is that the clean power plan, which is currently on hold indefinitely, it's placed a lot of focus on the power sector. So it makes sense to be looking at how do we go beyond that 33% reduction that was required by Clean Power Plan? And here in Pennsylvania, the electricity sector is the most significant contributor of greenhouse gas emissions. So it makes sense that it's the place that we start. We're a huge exporter of electricity. So what we do here in Pennsylvania affects many of our neighboring states. Yeah, and, and I think one of the interesting things you did in putting together the conference was sort of focusing on those four legs of those stools. You talked about them, the nuclear, the CCS for fossil fuels, renewables, and energy efficiency, but having, in some cases, even opposing views up there mm-hmm. talking about it. And I, what I took away to some extent is this is messy, that we don't, there isn't a silver bullet, and we really can't discount anything at this point in terms of approaches. Yeah, that's absolutely, I mean, not. I don't know if there's consensus among uh all folks working on this topic, but I think certainly our standpoint is that it's premature to take anything off the table. If we were working on this 40 years ago, then sure, let's let's start down one pathway with all of our eggs in that one basket. If it doesn't work, we have time to sort of retool and try a different approach. The urgency of climate change is such that we really we need to pick the right pathway now. And I think, you know, a 100% renewable future um, might be doable, but probably not on the time scale that we need to make those drastic cuts in emissions. Um, so why don't we look realistically about what pieces of it we need? And that might be nuclear. That might be carbon capture and storage. It might be a whole host of things. What's really exciting, I think, about deep decarbonization is you know, it's setting your eyes on the end goal instead of doing these little incremental targets of a 20% reduction, a 30% reduction. Um, the things that you might prioritize to get to a 30% reduction might never get you to a 100% reduction. So by looking at where we really need to go, ultimately, we can develop the most cost-effective, the most beneficial plan for Pennsylvania. And you mentioned 100% renewable, which is a great entree into discussions sort of nationally that have been going on the last couple of weeks with a group of about 23 scientists coming out with a paper challenging some of the work that had been done earlier looking for 100% renewable. And just yeah, and that was something that came out at the conference as well, and video of this is available on our website, but uh, <laughs> of pre- presentation talking about sort of flexible base and what can you do, how can you depend on different pieces. But there's there seems to be a little bit of a what people are going to try to point to as a schism within the sort of the climate world. Uh, over this 100% thing. You have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think you're exactly right that at least the way the dialogue's occurring right now, it often splits people into camps. You know, you sort of have the renewables plus energy efficiency piece versus this more comprehensive 
portfolio approach. Um, the paper you referred to was um, Clack et al. Uh, was released in mid-June. We wrote about it on our blog on, on the PECPA site. Some of the country's foremost scientists critiquing the work of Mark Jacobson of Stanford University. In 2015, he put out a study that's really, you know, kind of the Bible for a lot of renewable advocates because he showed that by 2050, the U.S. could achieve all of its energy. And it's important to note, the material at our conference was really focused on the power sector, on electricity. Um, Mark Jacobson's work was looking at the entire energy system, so transportation, heating, and industry. Um and that all of our power could be derived, or excuse me, all of our energy could be derived from wind, water, and solar by 2050 at a cost that was comparable to or less than um, the sort of trajectory that we're on, you know, business as usual today. Um, and that's what you often hear a lot of people who are advocates of 100% renewable scenarios is, that, hey, he modeled it, he proved it, it can be done, let's get to work and do it. The other side of the argument and sort of what's, I shouldn't say argument, but I mean, so often it's not a debate. It is it is more of an argument. People are very heated about this. This is really important stuff we're talking about. The Clack et al. paper pointed out sort of two things. First of all, some errors in the modeling, um, the real technical piece of it. And as you know, I'm a little bit more of a policy person, so I'm not going to dig too deep into the technical piece of it. But, you know, the other piece is just is it feasible? Maybe it's technically feasible, but is that type of a ramp up of resources doable in in our political co- economy? And uh, you know, terms of NIMBY issues, not in my backyard. You know, everybody loves solar, everybody loves wind, but not everybody wants that in their own landscape. Transmission lines that would need to be built, and I think the other side of the debate, you have like the 100% renewables, and then you have the people who are really thinking that's not going to be doable in the time scale that we need to address climate change. So let's look at keeping our existing nuclear fleet online or exploring whether there is a role for carbon capture and storage, which would allow for continued use of fossil fuels. Um, That doesn't mean you have to do it forever, but it would lock us into using fossil fuels for the next 50 years, maybe. And so, as you can probably like get a sense, those two those two approaches, you know, there's some really passionate advocates on both sides, and a lot of emotions involved, a lot of fear involved. If we pick the wrong pathway, um, our stance at PAC is that a portfolio approach would be a more prudent pathway. And let's see what the future brings in terms of going 100% one source or another source. So all of the above seems, in some cases, like a cop out. It's not here, I don't think. But in some ways, it's sort of saying we're not picking because right now, you can't pick. I would agree with that. I think all of the above sort of became a catchphrase in the Obama administration. And uh, a lot of folks criticized it because it said it's really just an excuse for being able to keep using fossil fuels. We need to keep fossil in the ground if we're going to be serious about limiting emissions and and addressing climate change. There's some credence to that argument. But when you look at the the political landscape in Pennsylvania and in the U.S., if you can make a place for more people, you know, more businesses and more industries at the table to play a part in the solutions, there's a much better chance of succeeding than picking and choosing certain technologies. And the reality that in Pennsylvania, we're on a path to probably reduce our Greenhouse gas emissions by 30 percent-ish by 2030. 
And most of that's based on switching from coal to natural gas. So there's already that big jump there. And it's mm -hmm. whether that's sustainable to get you to 80%. And it's not legislated. It's just the way that the the business is going. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So... As, as as we're not saying, as we're saying, you know, all of the above, which sounds to some as a cop out, but I don't think is in this case. But the the report does not say here here are X, Y, and Z what should be done. So what are we doing next? Yeah, <laughs> what are we doing next? So I would love if our report had, if it was such a clear cut topic that we could come out with a report that says do X, Y, and Z. Um, unfortunately, you know. There's still a lot of investigation um, and, a, and a lot more work to be done before you could get to that point. The immediate next step is digging deeper into carbon pricing. Um, that was something that came up in in the discussions at the conference, in some of the preliminary planning work. Um, you know, it's technology agnostic. It's anybody can play in that game as long as they can make the economics work. Um, just put a price on the externality that you want to limit and control and let the market figure it out. So we are convening a meeting in September with some of the key stakeholders in the state to dig a little deeper into that. And there's tons of, you know, there's lots of different ways a carbon price could be applied. There's carbon trading tradable credits like Reggie uses. There are... Which is the regional greenhouse, greenhouse gas, gas initiative. Yeah, that, that several states in the Northeast participate in. There's zero emissions credits that, you know, New York and Illinois have recently implemented programs or at least passed legislation to implement programs with zero emissions credits, which are, you know, being fought in the courtroom of whether you can do that or not. Um, there's a carbon tax. Um you know, there's different reasons that that some of these might be politically uh, appealing or not. Um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest questions that we need to figure out is what would the revenue model be? You know, what where would that money that's raised through a price on carbon go? Is it helping to fill in shortfalls in the state's budget? Is it going towards energy related programs and projects? Um, is it a fee and dividend structure? where it's going, you know, as a payment once a year to all the citizens of Pennsylvania. And so that's what we're planning to dig into a lot more deeply. And there's a lot of discussion going on about that now all over the country as the existing nuclear fleet starts having or has been having more trouble sort of competing. And that's what you were alluding to, Illinois, New York, that have gone in and put in these zero emission credits and whether that's a potential, whether that really works everywhere. I think there's a lot, there's angst about that from a lot of corners, but. Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, I think when you look at the existing uh, generation fleet in the state, nuclear plays a really significant role. My opinion is that those units should be the last to go offline as traditional centralized generation uh, gives way to more distributed, newer types of energy. That's absolutely the way the world is moving. I don't dispute that. I'm not saying that we need these dinosaurs around forever. I do think that because it is carbon-free electricity, they should be the last to go off. And not just uh, for carbon. I mean, for air pollution in general and for environmental you know, environmental health for the citizens of the state as well. So that's so, a really so contentious the, topic to dig into. And the big challenge is how do you address these needs for carbon reduction while at the same time having affordable, yes. uh, achievable, and 
what's the other word I'm looking for? Building it's, for reliability. Yeah. Reliability. Reliable. Yeah, it's reliability. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so it's really a question of looking at how you implement carbon reductions with affordable, reliable energy still being available to the consumers in Pennsylvania. And yeah. and we keep, even though the conference was on electricity, I think there were some folks at the conference who also brought up some very pertinent and good issues around transportation and other sectors as well, which will be looked at down the, down the road. So yeah. the report is out there. We're moving forward with. We've also got not only the PECPA.org website, of which all our stuff is there, but you've also got a deep decarbonization site with the URL of? PEC-climate.org. And what's on there right now? There's videos of all of the panels at the conference. So if you missed it and you want to check out some of the conversation that occurred, you can do so. That's where the white paper is, front and center on the homepage. Under the media tab, there's some great interviews with some of our key stakeholders from previous podcasts. So go check it out, see what's up, and we will be updating that even more as we move forward with these other roundtables and stakeholder discussions going forward and hopefully get Pennsylvania moving toward a something that gets us to deep decarbonization. I don't think anybody knows exactly what it is yet, but this is sort of a stay tuned. There's a lot more going on with sort of the move to try to come up with the actual recommendations and we'll see what happens. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. David Woodwell is president of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Lindsay Baxter runs our energy and climate program, which hosted Achieving Deep Carbon Reductions, Paths for Pennsylvania's Electricity Future in March. And you can download that white paper of the same title for free from the conference website, again, peck-climate.org. Lots more on deep decarbonization back at the mothership, peckpa.org, where you'll also find past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies. You can get caught up on the back catalog there and then subscribe in iTunes or maybe SoundCloud. Make sure you never miss another episode. Get in touch by email at legacies at peckpa.org. And be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at peckpa. Back next Friday with another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rawlerson. Thanks for listening.